If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step One, the ultimate USMLE Step One review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step One podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book, The goal is to provide you high yield and high quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Ryan Pettigo, and thank you for continuing to the next section of the Cardiology Podcast. The next section we're going to discuss is electrocardiography. So an electrocardiogram, often referred to as an ECG or EKG, is a great tool to assess the electrical activity of the heart. So when the cardiac myocytes go from polarized and their resting state to depolarized, there's an electrical current generated that we can measure. And the first thing we're going to talk about are the various waves. So there's a P wave, which represents atrial depolarization, a QRS complex, which represents ventricular depolarization, and a T wave, which represents ventricular repolarization. You may wonder why atrial repolarization is not included. And that's just because it usually occurs during the QRS complex and because the atria are so small in mass and electrical activity in comparison to the ventricles, you just don't see it. So we'll see atrial depolarization, ventricular depolarization, and ventricular repolarization. The P wave again represents atrial depolarization. And after the P wave, there is a pause called the PR segment. And this represents the conduction delay at the AV node. Because if the electrical activity were conducted to the ventricles too quickly, the ventricles would contract before they were completely full. When there is a disease of the AV node's conduction ability, it often manifests as an abnormality in this PR segment or PR interval. The difference between a segment and an interval is whether or not it also includes the wave that is named. For instance, the PR segment represents the conduction delay at the AV node, and that is the space after the P wave ends, but before the QRS complex begins. But when we talk about measuring PRs in clinical practice, we're typically talking about the PR interval. The PR interval includes the P wave, so it's the P wave 
plus the PR segment. So that's the difference between a PR interval and a PR segment. The next wave is the QRS complex, which is ventricular depolarization. The terminology of the QRS complex is somewhat confusing, but basically if the first deflection is downward, it's a Q wave. If there is no negative deflection to start the QRS complex, there is no Q wave. The first upward reflection, no matter what, is always an R wave, and any downward deflection after the R wave is an S wave. So if you have a QRS complex that just goes up and then down, you have an R and then an S. If you have a QRS complex that goes down, then up, then down, then you have a Q, an R, and an S. Because the fast His Purkinje conduction system is very efficient, if you have normal cardiac conduction, this QRS duration is less than 0.12 seconds. Lastly is the T wave, which represents ventricular repolarization. And there's a brief delay, which is the ST segment, again, a segment not including the waves. And then there's a T wave. There is sometimes a U wave that follows the T wave, which can be normal, uh, but is not common and can be seen also in hypokalemia or significant bradycardia. On the step one, you may get a 12-lead ECG, which looks at the heart from different vectors and angles, or you may get a rhythm strip, which is just one lead over time. The rhythm strip is useful for looking at abnormalities in rhythms, so arrhythmias, or looking at the rate. Basic rhythm strip abnormalities should be understood. It's important to be able to assess the heart rate. The EKG has what are called little boxes and big boxes. So if you look at an EKG, there's going to be some thicker lines, which represent big boxes, and then there's going to be smaller lines, which represent little boxes. Each little box is 0.04 seconds, or 40 milliseconds, and five little boxes make up one big box. Therefore, one big box is 0.2 seconds, or 200 milliseconds. If you need to measure a PR interval, for instance, a normal PR interval is 0.12 to 0.2 seconds. Therefore, it is three little boxes to five little boxes, or one big box. You can also count the big boxes between QRS complex to get an idea of the rate. And you can remember that if there is one big box of space between QRS complexes, the heart rate is 300. If there are two big boxes, it's 150, then 100, then 75, then 60, then 50. So 300, 150, 100, 75, 60, 50. So when looking at a 12-liter rhythm strip, you can get an idea of what the heart rate is if the machine doesn't print it out. A normal ECG is termed normal sinus rhythm, and to be classified as sinus, you have to have a P wave, which is an atrial contraction, before every QRS complex. And that makes sense because when the SA node depolarizes the atria, you get a P wave, and then when it goes through the AV node and the Hisperkinji system and depolarizes the ventricles, you get a QRS complex. It is also normal because there is neither bradycardia nor tachycardia present, so the heart rate must be between 60 and 100. There is one additional criteria for normal sinus rhythm, which is not important for the purposes of the step one, but the P wave must also be a sinus P wave, meaning that that P wave came from depolarization of the SA node and not an ectopic atrial focus. 
Sinus tachycardia occurs when you have a P wave before each QRS complex and it's coming from the SA node, but the heart rate is above 100. And of course, sinus bradycardia would be a rate under 60. Atrial flutter, there's an abnormal re-entry of electrical activity that's around the tricuspid valve annulus, causing a self-sustaining loop of activity. So instead of the SA node dictating each depolarization, there is a self-contained loop around the tricuspid valve annulus that just goes around and around and around and around and around and keeps depolarizing the atria. This usually occurs at an atrial rate of 300. But that's way too fast for the AV node to conduct to the ventricles because there's going to be a refractory period. So normally you have what's called a two to one conduction block, meaning if the atrial rate's 300, the ventricular rate is 150. Occasionally you may also have other blocks like a three to one block where the atrial rate's still 300 because it's still going around the tricuspid valve annulus at 300. But if only every third beat is conducted, then the heart rate and the ventricles would be 100. This is classically described as a sawtooth appearance because of the presence of the P waves at a rate of 300 on the EKG. In atrial fibrillation, there's random depolarization of various atrial myocytes that's unpredictable and chaotic, so you usually don't get any discernible P waves. And because it's random which beats are conducted, then you're going to have an irregularly irregular rhythm, meaning that it's irregular, but there's no regularity to it. There are some arrhythmias which are regularly irregular, in which the irregularity is predictable and occurs at regular intervals. Patients with atrial fibrillation, because of the stasis of blood in the atria due to no coordinated contraction, are at increased risk of having a left atrial thrombus and eventually embolic strokes, and so they are typically anticoagulated. If they are very low risk, you might be able to get away with aspirin. We will skip the ventricular rhythms because they do require visual input, so please reference crush step one. The next arrhythmia we'll talk about is Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, also known as ventricular pre-excitation syndrome. We discussed earlier that normally electrical activity can only get to the ventricles through the AV node. If you have Wolf-Parkinson-White, you have an extra accessory pathway known as the bundle of Kent, and so therefore when the atria depolarize, Instead of just going through the AV node, it can also leak through this bundle of Kent and prematurely depolarize the ventricles. This premature excitation manifests itself as what's called a delta wave, which is an upslope before the QRS complex and a shortened PR interval. The shortened PR interval is because instead of the normal delay that the AV node provides before the QRS complex, it can prematurely leak through the bundle of Kent, and then it starts a depolarization from myocyte to myocyte once it goes through the bundle of Kent, and eventually it'll also go through the AV node, and then the ventricle will depolarize normally after that. This can potentially cause a few very dangerous tachycardias. One is called orthodromic atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. The other is called antidromic atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia. Briefly trying to describe what this is without a figure is somewhat difficult, but you can imagine that if the atria depolarized and then went through the AV node and then went through the Hisperkinji system, it would depolarize all of the ventricular myocardium. When that depolarization hits the bundle of Kent, which is that abnormal bypass tract, then the signal can leak up into the atrium, 
depolarize the atrium again, and then go through the AV node and start the process again. This leads to a circuit where it goes AV node, his Purkinje system, back through the bundle of Kent, depolarizing the atria, going to the AV node, and restarting the process. This will cause a narrow complex tachycardia, and it will be narrow because the ventricular depolarization is occurring through the very fast Hisperkinji system. This is orthodromic AVRT. You can also get antidromic AVRT. In antidromic AVRT, the ventricles are depolarized via the bundle of Kent. And instead of going through the very, very fast Hisperkinji system, it's going through the very, very slow myocyte-to-myocyte conduction because it's not using the very fast Hisperkinji system. This makes it take longer to depolarize all the ventricular myocardium, which leads to a wide QRS complex because remember, QRS complex is ventricular depolarization. Once it gets to the AV node, it can then go retrograde through the AV node into the atria, depolarize the atria, and then leak back through the bundle of Kent, causing a self-sustaining circuit. But because the ventricles are being depolarized not through the Hisperkinji system, but from myocyte to myocyte, it's going to be a wide complex tachycardia. The most dangerous thing that people with Wolf-Parkinson-White can have is if they have atrial fibrillation with a bundle of Kent that can transmit signals quickly, and if that occurs, then the ventricles can depolarize at incredibly high rates, sometimes even over 200-300 beats per minute, and that is almost immediately life-threatening. Just discussing this verbally might be really difficult, so please check figure 8.22 in Crush Step 1. Lastly, we're going to talk about heart blocks, which are atrioventricular blocks. There are going to be first degree, second degree, and third degree, and under second degree, there are two types. So a first degree AV block is just a prolonged PR interval, which is greater than 0.2 seconds, but all the beats are conducted. This can be seen in normal people. So if the PR interval, which is the P wave and the PR segment, so the space between the very beginning of the P wave and the very beginning of the QRS complex, is more than 0.2 seconds, which is one big box or five little boxes, there's a first degree AV block. But all the beats must be conducted. A second degree heart block has two types, and in both these cases, there will be drop beats. The first is called a Mobitz type 1 second degree AV block, which is also known as a Wenkebach block. And there's progressive PR prolongation, and then you have a drop beat, and then it resets the PR interval. So the way to remember this is the chime short, longer, longer block. Now you have a wanky block. And this just means that the PR interval will get longer, longer, longer. Then you'll have a non-conducted P wave, and then it will reset. A Mobitz type 2 second degree AV block has a fixed PR interval with randomly dropped beats. This is more dangerous because it has the risk of devolving into what's called a third degree AV block. And in a third-degree AV block, there's complete AV dissociation. So the atria is depolarizing at whatever rate the SA node wants to, but none of those signals are transmitted through the AV node to the ventricle because there is no longer any conduction of electrical signal from the atria to the ventricles. This means that one of those backup pacemakers that we talked about, maybe the bundle of Hiss or bundle branch or a ventricular myocyte, will now take over as the pacemaker and depolarize the heart but this is usually at a substantially lower rate and can be immediately life-threatening. 
Both a Mobitz Type 2 second-degree AV block and a third-degree AV block require pacemaker implantation. Next, we're moving into cardiology pathology. The first section is congenital heart disease, and there are many congenital heart diseases, and these are broadly classified into two categories, cyanotic and acyanotic. Cyanotic heart diseases usually have right-to-left shunts, so that deoxygenated blood from the right heart is put into the systemic circulation, so you get cyanosis, because that's bypassing the lungs, not getting oxygenated. Acyanotic lesions often have left-to-right shunts, so oxygenated blood then gets recycled to the right heart and the lungs and doesn't cause cyanosis. The five main testable cyanotic heart diseases can be remembered by using your hand. So if you're driving or if you're at the gym, maybe don't do this, but if you're not, uh, go ahead and follow along. So give me one finger up, so a thumbs up with your hand. And that is to represent truncus arteriosus. So normally the truncus arteriosus divides into the pulmonary trunk and aorta. If that doesn't happen, you just have the one trunk, which is a aorta and pulmonary artery. And so that's why it's one thumb up because it's one artery. Next is two fingers up. So peace sign, but then cross your fingers. This is transposition of the great vessels because like your fingers are crossed, these vessels are crossed. The aorta and pulmonary artery are transposed, switched. So the aorta comes off the right ventricle, and the pulmonary artery comes off the left ventricle. This causes two completely separate circulations. So the right ventricle is pumping deoxygenated blood to your whole body, which then goes to the right ventricle again. The left ventricle is pumping oxygenated blood to the lungs, but then it comes back to the left atrium and left ventricle. You can imagine that this would be incompatible with life, and that's true unless there's a shunt that connects the two systems. So if you have a patent ductus arteriosus or a patent foramen ovale, you have some way to get blood from the left heart to the right heart, and that can be a temporizing thing and keep the person alive until more definitive surgery. So we had thumbs up for truncus arteriosus, two fingers crossed for transposition of the great vessels. Now you're going to put three fingers up, and that's for tricuspid atresia. So three fingers, tri. So absence of the tricuspid valve means there's no connection between the right atrium and right ventricle. And so the right ventricle is not receiving blood. It's not receiving that preload that the right atrium normally gives. That leads to underdevelopment of that RV, so it's hypoplastic, so it's small and weak. You must have both an atrial septal defect and a ventricular septal defect to maintain blood flow. Then it can go from the right atrium through the ASD to the left atrium, from the left atrium to the left ventricle, through the VSD to the right ventricle, then it can get to the lungs. Now we have four fingers up for tetralogy of Fallot, because tetra is four for four abnormalities. Tetralogy of Fallot can be remembered with the mnemonic PROVE. Although it's only four, prove has five letters, so we're only using the force four letters of prove, P-R-O-V. The P is pulmonary stenosis. R is right ventricular hypertrophy, and this causes a boot-shaped heart. O is overriding aorta, and V is ventricular septal defect. So Tetralogy of Fallot has four abnormalities, and we're going to remember that with the four fingers.
Patients will suffer from cyanotic spells, which are called tet spells. And they try to improve their cyanosis by squatting because that increases their afterload because it's compressing all of those lower extremity arteries. And that means there's comparatively less resistance in the pulmonary circulation. So you get more blood going through the lungs instead of going from the right heart to the left heart through the ventricular septal defect. Lastly is five fingers up for the five letters of this last congenital heart disease, which is T-A-P-V-R, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. So five words, five fingers. Total anomalous pulmonary venous return means exactly what it sounds like. The pulmonary veins, all of them, so total, instead of draining into the left atrium, drain into the systemic venous circulation. And again, like some of these others, a shunt between the two atria must be present or oxygenated blood can never reach the left side of the heart because all the oxygenated blood in the pulmonary veins instead are going back to the systemic venous circulation. So to recap, thumbs up, truncus arteriosus, two fingers crossed, transposition of the great vessels, three fingers up, tricuspid atresia, four fingers up, tetralogy of Fallot, five fingers up for TAPVR. There are also acyanotic heart diseases like a VSD or ventricular septal defect, ASD, atrial septal defect, and PDA, patent ductus arteriosus, and that's in descending order of frequency. These cause left to right shunts, so oxygenated blood's put back into the right side of the heart, so those don't typically cause cyanosis because you're not shunting deoxygenated blood into the systemic circulation. Eventually, because of the chronic elevated right-sided heart pressures that occur with these, you can eventually get what's called Eisenmenger syndrome, where the left-to-right shunt now changes to a right-to-left shunt from the chronic volume overload of the right heart, and then you can get cyanosis, and that process is termed Eisenmenger syndrome. The next cardiology pathology we're going to talk about is hypertension. So we know this simply as high blood pressure, and it's a risk factor for a lot of causes of morbidity and mortality like coronary artery disease, strokes, heart failure, renal failure, because it's often asymptomatic. It's sometimes termed the silent killer. Most of this is primary hypertension or essential hypertension, but on the tests, it's maybe more likely to be secondary hypertension. So you should know about some of the causes of secondary hypertension. One is renovascular hypertension. In chapter 9, we talk about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system explained in pretty substantial detail. But basically, when the kidney's JG cells see less blood, they think the blood pressure is low. And that's pretty reasonable. The kidneys are kind of looking out for themselves. They're like, oh, hypoperfusion? I don't see enough blood flow? I'm going to release mechanisms to increase that blood pressure, specifically renin in this case. In older adults who have atherosclerosis or younger women who have fibromuscular dysplasia, the JG cells are kind of wrong. I mean, the JG cells are correct in that they're seeing less blood, but it's not reflective of the circulation to the rest of the body. So it's going to perpetually secrete renin and activate this renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and increase your blood pressure. The next cause might be primary hyperaldosteronism, which is Kahn syndrome. And this is caused by an aldosterone-secreting tumor in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland. And this basically will have increased aldosterone levels 
but renin levels would be low because aldosterone is being secreted directly by the tumor. In renovascular hypertension, your renin will be high, but your aldosterone level will also be high, but that aldosterone level being high is due to the activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. A pheochromocytoma is a catecholamine-secreting tumor in the medulla of the adrenal gland, although a small proportion are extra-adrenal, so in the sympathetic plexi uh, or elsewhere. And that can cause symptoms of increased catecholamine release like palpitations, diaphoresis, because sweating is sympathetic cholinergic, uh, and headache. Lastly, Cushing syndrome. So you have increased glucocorticoid levels, and that can be due to a multitude of issues like prescription steroids or an ACTH-secreting tumor in the pituitary gland, which is called Cushing's disease, or an ectopic ACTH-secreting tumor like a small cell cancer of the lung or a corticosteroid-secreting tumor of the zona fasciculata of the adrenal gland. Patients in all these cases would have pretty typical stigmata of Cushing syndrome, like a round face, which they call moon facies, central obesity, hemorrhagic purple-red striae, and hirsutism. Next, we'll talk about ischemic heart disease, and usually this happens when there's an imbalance of myocardial oxygen supply and demand, leading to inadequate oxygenation of the myocardium. So angina is that squeezing pressure-like sensation of the chest that can be stable angina, meaning it happens with exertion, it's relieved by rest, but it's not worsening. So if a patient's like, I walk two blocks and I get chest pain and it's been that way for a year, that would be stable angina. That's usually due to narrowed coronary arteries, um, but they are not occluded because they're not having uh, rest symptoms. Unstable angina is angina that's worsening. So if they say, Six months ago, I could walk two blocks, but you know, in the last week, now I can only walk three steps before getting chest pain, uh, or now it's happening at rest when I'm just sitting around. That is an example of unstable angina, so angina that is worsening with less exertion or occurring at rest or lasting longer uh, is unstable, and that's a medical emergency. Prinz metals angina is due to vasospasm. And then people also can get chronic ischemic heart disease. So if they have chronic oxygen deprivation, they can get progressive ischemic cardiomyopathy. Myocardial infarction describes when myocardium actually is dying, and that can have multiple types. So uh, we talk about a STEMI or ST elevation myocardial infarction. So the ST segment of the EKG, if that's elevated in multiple leads, uh, we would call that a STEMI. And that basically needs emergent cardiac catheterization because that means there's transmural ischemia. And so typically one of the cardiac arteries is completely occluded. A NSTEMI, a non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, um, means that you are having heart death, so myocyte death, but you do not meet STEMI criteria on the ECG. There are multiple different types of NSTEMIs, uh, the specifics of which are not important for the step one, but these patients would have a positive troponin, but they would not meet STEMI criteria on an ECG. Uh, because there's a multitude, um, there's actually separate types of NSTEMI, um, and so someone who's in septic shock may actually have an NSTEMI just because their blood pressure is so low it leads to myocardial necrosis. But then the problem isn't exactly with the heart. The problem is that they're septic shock. 
We measure these uh, historically with CKMB, which is a subtype of creatine kinase uh, that's more specific to muscle. But now we're using troponins, and there's more and more sensitive assays of troponins. And usually within about four hours of myocyte death, that's detectable in the bloodstream and stays elevated for about a week. One of the previously tested things is that CKMB normalizes within a few days, whereas troponin uh, stays positive for longer. So some people will may test that CKMB can help diagnose reinfarction, although that's probably becoming less and less pertinent. Ischemia or other things can lead to heart failure, and heart failure is an inability of the heart to supply sufficient blood flow to meet the metabolic needs of the patient, and those can cause different signs and symptoms depending on which side of the heart is affected. First, for heart failure, we breach those into two things, ones with systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction, and so you will hear what's called HEFREF, which is heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction meaning the systolic function of the left ventricle is depressed. And you'll hear HEF-PEF, heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction, which means that the heart can squeeze out what's delivered to it, but because there's a stiff ventricle that can't fill well, the ventricle can eject the blood it receives, but it's not enough blood. We may also classify this in left-sided failure, right-sided failure, and biventricular failure. So left-sided failure occurs when the left ventricle cannot eject sufficient blood into the aorta, so that can back up into the lungs, producing pulmonary edema. You may get bibasilar inspiratory crackles. You may get orthopnea, which is difficulty breathing while lying supine because you get increased venous return, and now you have increased preload that eventually will make its way to the left heart but cannot be ejected. So these patients may sit up at night to try to prevent that. And they may have an S3 or S4 sound, which we talked about previously. Right-sided heart failure, on the other hand, occurs when the right ventricle cannot eject sufficient blood into the pulmonary artery. The most common cause of right-sided heart failure is left-sided heart failure. When the right ventricle fails just because of the lungs or like a pulmonary embolism, chronic lung disease, which causes really high pulmonary vascular resistance and increase afterload on the right heart, and the LV is fine, we call that core pulmonale. So that would be often from COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, pulmonary embolism, where the LV is fine, but the RV has failed due to some problem with the pulmonary circulation and or lungs. Because now the right heart is failing and cannot eject the blood that is delivered to it effectively, you'll see jugular venous distension because the venous return to the right heart is backed up, and you see that when you look at their jugular vein. You'll see edema because we talked about the starling forces. You'll have increased hydrostatic pressure in the capillary beds, which promote fluid leaving the capillary beds and going into the interstitium, and that manifests itself as edema. You can even get hepatomegaly and congestive hepatopathy because the hepatic veins drain into the vena cava, which is now extra plump. You can also have diseases of the pericardium, pericarditis being the most common, characterized by inflammation of the pericardium, and it can be infectious, which is much more common, or non-infectious. Infectious causes usually being Coxsackie virus, tuberculosis, etc., uh, there are also non-infectious causes like uremia due to renal failure, autoimmune disease, cancer. 
The classic findings are that patients will have chest pain relieved by sitting forward, and they may have a pericardial friction rub because that inflamed pericardium no longer provides that nice smooth surface for the heart to beat against. On the EKG, you'll show diffuse ST segment elevation and PR segment depression, and that can be differentiated from a STEMI because it encompasses all the leads, whereas a myocardial infarction that's a STEMI only usually has the sections of the heart supplied by that occluded artery. Knowing the EKG leads which represent different arteries are beyond the scope of this chapter. Although pericarditis is often self-limited, you can get pericardial effusion and potentially even constrictive pericarditis. A pericardial effusion we talked about is an accumulation of fluid in the pericardium, and because the outer pericardial sac is fibrous, it does not descend easily. So if you get rapid accumulation of fluid, even a relatively small amount of fluid, will not be able to expand the fibrous pericardium and instead push back on the heart, preventing it from filling. With a really large effusion, you may see something called electrical alternans on the EKG, where the QRS complexes get bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller. And that's because on a beat-to-beat basis, the heart is swinging back and forth in your chest, getting closer to and then farther from the EKG leads. When you have pericardial fluid, that is now impeding your heart from filling, you now have pericardial tamponade, which is a medical emergency. The classic thing is Beck's triad, which is hypotension, and this is from decreased cardiac output, because remember that your cardiac output is based on your stroke volume and heart rate, and if you cannot fill your heart, you cannot have a sufficient stroke volume. You can also get jugular venous distension, because the heart cannot fill, so it instead backs up, and you can see that in the jugular vein, and muffled heart sounds because the heart's being strangled with this fluid. If you diagnose pericardial tamponade from a medical cause, immediate pericardiocentesis is indicated where you stick a needle into the pericardial sac and drain the fluid. More rarely, you can get pericardial tamponade from trauma, so if you get stabbed in the heart, and a pericardiocentesis in this case is not helpful because the pericardial sac will just reaccumulate with blood because presumably you have a hole in your heart that's bleeding into your pericardial sac. So these people need a thoracotomy and actual repair of the hole. The pharmacology section is going to be very much aided by the figures in the chapter, so for the pharmacology section, please see the textbook. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast, and we hope this helps your understanding of cardiology for the USMLE Step 1. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.